all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 352 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the international appearances episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that uh, in USA Women's National Soccer, or perhaps you might know it as football, there is an all-time record for the number of international appearances by a player. This particular player is Christine Lilly, and her number of international appearances is 352. And with that wonderful little bit of international appearance by the U.S. women's national football soccer team, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident sunny employee, Jack O'Tim. I was trying to do a play off, of, you know, like the Treehouse of Horror things, like Jack Leonard and My Name Tim, oh, but I, sure. I realized it sounded a lot more awkward and inappropriate, like midway through saying it. I, I don't think Jacko should come before anything except Lantern. Well, I suppose you could have said Timo Lantern. That would require an amount of brain function that I currently do not possess. <laughs> that's, that's okay. I, I, I am currently powered by Strongbow. That's right, folks. Uh, and especially Blaine. I am now channeling my inner Canadian bearded man who has been... We've been working behind the scenes for about two years trying to find some Strongbow. Now, oh, and for those who do not know who Blaine is, Blaine is a.k.a. dead Johnny White Trash. Right, the artist formerly known as Johnny White Trash. Um, and so, now, in all fairness, it's not like I've been trying super-duper hard. Just any time I would come across it in the store, I'd take a picture, and I would send it to him, or I would, you know, hit him up on Skype or whatever, and be like, hey, I've got this, is this it? And he'd always be like, no. I'm like, fine. So, I'm at uh, the Target last week, uh, last Saturday, and lo and behold, not only did I find my amazing 805 without having to go to Total Wine and More, which I love, but if I don't, if I'm not already driving out there, then it was a, it was wonderful to find my, uh, to, to find my 805 at the Target, and they also had the Strongbow, and I'm like, man, could this, could this be the one? So I took the picture and DM'd, and he's like, that's it! And I'm like, oh my god, I'm drinking it. So I tried it out tonight. Actually, quite good. It is the Strongbow Original Dry, and it it is both an it is both an original cider, simple apple cider, but it is perfectly dry so it's not too sweet but it's also not so dry that it's just kind of like fizzy carbonation on the tongue so it worked beautifully i was super stoked and i enjoyed it so thank you blaine it was worth the wait and um yeah and also allows me to think of things like timo lantern timo lantern that is days better than Jacko Tim. Jacko Tim. <laughs> Did you take your Jacko Tim today? <laughs> Side effects include. Well, speaking of beer drinking, German Fest, a lot of Oktoberfests and German celebrations are happening, which is both 
deliciously satisfying and deadly because that would also entail getting into your car and having to drive home after that German Fest experience with the sounds, the sounds of the Oompa band still in your head because it takes about half an evening to get the sounds of a tuba and the accordion out of there. I don't know. Are, are you a tuba fan? For some reason, I look at you and I think Matt would perform a crazy good tuba solo if given the chance. Yeah, see, it's just because I'm fat. That is big not guy. big the case. Big guy, stereotypical. It's okay. It happens. You know. Even if I said the accordion, you would have said the same thing. No, no. Accordion's just kind of quirky, and that's okay. No, I, I am not um, a specific tuba fan. Um, uh, you know, most brass instruments are okay. And I do like to occasionally listen to a little polka music, generally by the uh, Weird Al, the artist known as Weird Al. But I also don't mind it so much if I'm like at an Oktoberfest event, you know, they'll, they'll pipe it in or whatever, and um, I'm, I'm okay with that. But just a tuba for the sake of a tuba? Eh, not so much. Well, besides that, how's... <laughs> 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 Have you enjoyed any sausages of late? I know we 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 are known for going in depth on sausages and eating of said sausages. I am actually looking forward to doing some good sausages uh here in about a month we'll be doing our annual uh, family reunion and we're going to be doing some barbecue we'll have some good brisket and everything and i'm going to be working the sausages in then hopefully we'll get some good kielbasa action we will get some good bratwurst action and i'll i'll have to let you know but in the meantime i actually have not really done much sausage as of late i i had some good sausages at the brewery so thought i should throw that out there did you have now? Did you have a really good mustard to pair it with? Yes, a really good like the mustard with like the seeds in it, where you can feel the consistency of the seeds. Sure, uh, it's delicious. That and a really good. Uh, normally, I don't like cheese on like mustards. Like if I'm gonna have like a really good German cheese, um, as well as mustard, I save that for my pretzel. But okay. some of the sausages with that cheese was delicious. The beer cheese. Nice and warm and, and melty and whatnot. Yum. Awesome. Well, Matthew, I know we didn't have this on the docket for this episode, but I came across Halloween movie sequel news. Because <laughs> I'm sure, okay. as you heard, as a sequel to the Halloween sequel that came out last year uh, that we both reviewed, and we both did not like it. If I remember correctly, you definitely didn't like it. That is correct, sir. Part of the reason why we didn't like it, at least for me, is that it felt like it was another rehash, an updated rehash of the original film. We felt it was a missed opportunity that they could have like breathed new life into it if they just did something different. I'm with you on that. I think that's a fair statement for both of us. Well, I came across an article this morning, and we're recording this on Monday, October 7th. So this morning... From ComingSoon.net, an article entitled, Halloween Kills Heading Back to Haddonfield 
Memorial Hospital. Oh, Jesus. I didn't pull it from this exact article, but there are a couple other articles floating around out there where they're alluding to a big portion of the film taking place inside of the hospital. Very much like the sequel, like Halloween 2. So how about those apples? More of the rehashing for the Halloween franchise. I gotta be honest with you, I have no desire to see it. So, I mean, I guess there's that. Thanks, John Carpenter and everybody else who's trying to keep this crap alive unnecessarily and all, for all the wrong reasons. Well, it's uh, my desire to see one of the most iconic horror franchises in cinema history. <laughs> but who knows? Could be different. It could just be featured in the opening or in the closing, or it could be where the whole climatic second and third act uh, takes place. But I guess we'll find out next year when... Halloween Kills comes out. And then the following year wait, when wait, Halloween you've ends. You've got to finish that title. You've got to finish the title. It's Halloween Kills, your desire to see Halloween movies. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I'm being too cynical. That wasn't fair. I mean it was kind of funny, but it wasn't fair. <laughs> A little bit. Kind of. <laughs> but I mean it's just one of those weird things where you see people like it's well known that Halloween 2. I enjoyed Halloween 2. I thought it was a very entertaining movie. But the last Halloween movie that came out last year apparently takes place after the original Halloween movie. So whenever, like, the first still you see of the new one is the hospital, it's just kind of like... Couldn't we have just, like, stayed away from that hospital for maybe one or two more movies? Maybe kill Michael where he was born... The only thing that's going to kill the movies at this point is having the movie do poorly. Um, now, it might take a couple more movies. That's what happened with Star Wars. But they're now backing off on that. So maybe they will do the same thing if this hospital crap doesn't pan out financially. Only time will tell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well... Let us move from one horror franchise to another. What do you say, sir? Ooh. That's unless, all I got. Of course, it's just ooh. Oh, oh well, I was going to... Unless, of course, we can't see it coming. Ah, 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 ah. One. I'm, ah, ah, ah. I'm too tired, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. Yes, I think it is time for the movies. What do you say, brother? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's the movie we Alright, and this time we are covering, actually we're breaking into, we're finally digging in to the wonder that is the universal classic horror flicks for the Invisible Man. So we're going to be doing them in chronological order. We've got 1933's The Invisible Man, 1940's The Invisible Man Returns, and based solely on the success of 1940's The Invisible Man Returns, there was a very quick turnaround on a kind of comedy version of it called The Invisible Woman, also from 1940. And, as usual, I presume we shall go in chronological order, right, Tim? Of course. Then... Let us begin. 
Now you see him. Now you don't. Bandages right up to the top of his head, all round his ears. Flora's worried about Griffin. I had a terrible feeling last night. I felt he was in desperate trouble. He meddled in things men should leave alone. Not the slightest clue. That's where the clues are. He wasn't leaving anything to chance. There must be a way back. God knows there's a way back. Are you doing help? If only they'd leave me alone. It's the stranger with the goggles. He's gone mad. Crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. <laughs> Let me be a madness when you're peering through the keyholes and peeping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. But why? Why do it, Griffin? Just a scientific experiment at first. To do something no other man in the world had done. Suddenly I realized the power I held. The power to rule. To make the world corroborate my feet. You know who the Invisible Man is, Doctor. Where is Doctor Griffin? What's the good of concealing it? Oh, come and stay with us. Let's fight this thing out together. Police, quickly. The Invisible Man is in my house. He's mad. He's killed a man tonight. Believe me, as surely as the moon will set and the sun will rise, I shall kill you tomorrow night. The secret of invisibility lies there in my books. Don't you see what it means? Power. Power to walk into the gold vaults of the nations, into the secrets of kings, into the holy of holies. Power to make multitudes run squealing in terror at the touch of my little invisible finger. Frightened of me. The whole world's frightened to death. I'll lay traps that even an invisible man can't pass. Radio stations now. Watch the wall. Help! Help! He's here! He's here! <laughs> here we go gathering nuts and me on a cold and frosty morning. Whoops! Visible Man, 1933. Now, this is important. It's a pre code science fiction horror film. Uh, this one's directed by James Whale. It is actually based on H.G. Wells' novel, and H.G. Wells himself saw it and was able to comment on it. Uh, it stars uh, Gloria Stewart, Claude Rains, William Harrigan, Dudley Diggs, Una O'Connor, Henry Travers, and Forrester Harvey. And it is basically the story of a man who has taken a um, through, through the science of it has ended up taking this drug that allows him to become invisible. But unfortunately, the side effect of the primary drug that causes the bleaching or causes him to be able to um, become invisible drives him insane. And this is, of course, that story. It's the story of him. The Our Invisible Man is uh, iconically played by Claude Rains. Uh, something that is important to note is that this isn't one of those things where he's just a disembodied voice. Um, they were very clever in the use of special effects. I mean, the special effects is probably one of the things that actually carried this film. It, they are really, really, really good. And this is in 2019. I'm telling you, they're really, really, really good. Um Yes, they are from the 30s, but even saying good for the time is almost a little bit of an insult because they were that good. 
Um, so Claude Rains actually was there quite frequently uh, in the getup. They also used a special black felt velveteen kind of a thing that allowed him to be able to transition for some of those special effects. So, I mean, he really was there um, almost all the time. Something we will get to in the next movie. Uh, so you, you really get the sense that, um, that the, that Claude Rains has really got this character on lock, which is great. Um, I think that the, the biggest strength of the movie is that even though they've changed it from the book, the changes they made add to the drama of the film. It, it adds to the sinister nature of the character, which coincidentally was H.G. Wells's biggest problem with it is they kind of made, um, that they, they've made, uh, Griffin, Dr. Jack Griffin is the guy's name. So they've made Griffin a, no longer a sympathetic character, whereas in the book he is. And so H.G. Wells was, was a little miffed about that. However, even he was like, but, the movie's good on the whole, and the special effects are crazy. Uh, I guess at the end of the day, I will say that this movie is one of the reasons why there was a classic universal cinema universe. They really did take a fantastic story and adapt it really, really well for the screen in such a way that... It's not campy in such a way that it's not meant to be horror in the vein of Frankenstein, but more thriller and horror in the idea of what insanity played out looks like. Uh, I give this one uh, four stars myself. I really enjoyed this movie. It has been many, many, many years since I've seen this film, and it was good to revisit it. Um, first time I saw this movie, I want to say I was about 10, 11 in that neighborhood. I watched it back in the old days of the original AMC, about the time that TCM is coming around, and I watched it with my mom. And from there, she then introduced me to Phantom of the Opera and stuff. She's like, oh, well, if you like Claude Rains here, so on and so forth. Tim, what do you have? I could gush on this for a while, but it's a very, very solid movie. Um, I, and I guess I didn't really get to the flaws, but we can dig into that as we need to. But four stars for me. What do you got there, sir? Saying that the movie has flaws is a little is weird. Because I want to say, well, the movie definitely has flaws because of its age. <laughs> but yeah, we'll get more into that later on. This movie is absolutely fascinating. Not only because of the effects and just the storytelling that the film was able to achieve, but it was the people behind the camera and their talent that is just as, if not more so, astounding. You have Claude Rains, of course, who was a horrible screen actor, but was a well-regarded stage actor. I mean, the issue with them is that he was very theatrical and over-the-top, and James Whale casted him for his voice. Uh, but they needed somebody that, with great gusto to their performance, so they could actually create a character that is not seen till the very end. 
James Well, of course, was the director of Frankenstein. Uh, he was the director that Universal brought on to uh, try to make Lightning Strike twice with another classic horror film. But with this movie, James Well uh, was a bit more hands-on. I'll get to that in a minute. Probably most importantly, uh, this movie would not have been the same without the work of John Fulton. Uh, John P. Fulton was nominated for five Academy Awards. Two of those Academy Awards, he actually won. Uh, 1946, he won for Wonder Man, and then 1957, he won for the Ten Commandments. The importance <laughs> of John Fulton can only be appreciated if you've seen all of these Invisible Man movies. Because especially after... The Invisible Man Returns, you see the effects, the quality of the effects and how they are accomplished, uh, the quality just dwindle. So there was a lot of great, amazing talent behind the camera that produced such a classic universal monster film. A little bit of backstory here. MGM turned down the making of the movie because they felt that it was too difficult to make with the invisible special effects. So Universal bought the rights for $10,000. Uh, however, H.G. Wells did have script approval. The film went through 12 different writers, including H.G. Wells, who penned his own version of the script. And four different directors were approached and passed on the film. James Well, of course, was hired on to do the film, even though he kind of didn't I mean, he enjoyed working on Frankenstein, but he just didn't like how Universal forced Frankenstein to have a happy ending. Boris Karloff was originally cast as the Invisible Man, but he left late in the pre-production process. Um, the Invisible Man kind of came about in a very interesting time for Hollywood movies because this was the 1930s. The film came out in 1933, folks. This was during the Great Depression. You know, a lot of hardships. And a lot of people weren't going to the movie theaters. They weren't seeing movies. So Universal was struggling. By this time, Boris Karloff was a big star. Frankenstein shot him up to the top echelon of the A-list. They couldn't pay for it, so they dropped him, and they brought him Claude Rains instead. He was hired at the last minute. And again, it was because of his, his voice. It was very memorable and very distinct, and they wanted to give the character of the Invisible Man a very memorable and distinct, powerful voice. Like what Matt was saying before, both the book and the movie open the same way. I love... Love the opening when you first see the Invisible Man as he enters that inn where he's trying to get a room to work on his cure. And there's like three consecutive upshots that really establish this character of mystery and ultimate creepiness. And you really get a good look of all the bandages and his crazy looking goggle sunglasses and the fake nose that he has on. R.C. Sheriff was the writer of the film. He decided to write a faithful adaption of the book after seeing all the other different scripts that were written. I mean, there were a lot of bizarro scripts that incorporated other Invisible Man stories into it. Basically disregarded the source material, which Universal purchased, you know, for $10,000. However, the liberties that Sheriff took were all virtually well accepted. He made the character of Kemp 
the uh, the scientist, the other scientist doctor that Griffin goes to for for help and pretty much threatens him at the same time, saying that if you out me, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to kill you. And then when Kemp does out him, he gets threatened by Griffin that, oh, yeah, I'm going to at 10 o'clock tomorrow night, I'm going to come after you and kill you. Well, that character of Kemp was more important in the movie to create the struggle between a scientist, a, a, a main character that you can identify it from Griffin's past and Griffin, the crazy lunatic doctor. This is very much in parallel to various story elements from Frankenstein from a few years earlier with the uh, scientist versus monster, you know, and here it's monster versus the scientist. And I just think all, all that's very interesting. And you can find like different uh, other different parallels with Frankenstein as well with the love interest and like what the what the I forget the character's name, but the actress who plays the heroine in the film is actually the old lady from Titanic, which I thought was pretty interesting. But the structure is very much the same. It follows many of the same plot points. However, it does seem like, because it's absolutely true, that Universal forced the happy ending, which allows certain characters to live and to find love. With The Invisible Man, James Well and Sheriff really wanted to be involved with the story from the very beginning to create and alter the story and these character elements by way of killing off the main characters. And even the rival, you know, Kemp, so that at the end of the film, the heroine has nobody left to fall in love with. He wanted to create a monster movie where there were true consequences and to where the audience actually felt like the, uh, the monster was going to succeed in his dastardly plans. Some other things I really liked about the film, other than some really cool edits and some cool shots. For example, close to the beginning of the movie, after Griffin comes in and he checks into the inn, and the innkeeper, played by Una O'Connor, starts bringing him up food. And she brings, like, sausages, if I remember correctly, and she leaves and she goes, oh, darn, I forgot the mustard. So she goes down, gets the mustard, and as she brings the mu she opens up the door to bring in the mustard there's this great shot where it cuts to her point of view of griffin at the table and his bandages are kind of off and it reveals his invisible jaw his invisible mouth that's when uno connor's character reacts to it and you hear her shrill annoying voice and that's what really sets griffin off to become this crazy killer to where he doesn't even want to look for his cure anymore. You know, what's the what's the point of it now when I have been outed by the innkeeper's wife? You know, I just want to go on like kind of a, a killing rampage, you know? So I like those story elements, how it's a mix between the monocaine, which is the name of the drug that he ingests that turns him invisible, that, of course, makes him crazy, you know, it, it, it just kind of changes his, alters his mood and whatnot. That coupled with being caught and being seen by the annoying, shrill innkeeper's wife, that's what sets him off to start killing people. I mean, it's just very interesting. Like, there's not a lot of forced dramatic depth to force this story along to make things happen, you know, like within the one hour and 15 minutes a lot of things happen. Like, there's no extra padding. 
we talked definitely about the special effects, and there are indeed some uh, limitations to the effects at the time. Uh, there's a great scene where you see him being invisible. He, he lights a cigarette, and he has the lighter, he has the cigarette, and you see how he holds the cigarette and then the lighter, and it almost looks like he has his leg crossed, and he has one arm resting on his knee. So the cigarette's kind of bent a little bit, so there's a lot of great movement. Uh, invisible movement, if you will, and some excellent choreography. And this was done by using traveling mats, where there were technically three or four different shots where you had to use that dark black velvet curtain or screen, which is what Matt was talking about earlier. And you had to shoot that to get the composite, the mat shot of the body, you know, to get the clothing, especially. So the person, even if it was uh, a double or if it was Claude Rains, had to wear black over his face, black on the hand, so they can get a look of the clothing. And they would have to do kind of the same thing on the set, and they would also have to get a separate shot of the empty portion of the scenery of the set, just so they had something to blend the different effects with. So you got the impression of the Invisible Man. So for its time, there were a lot of state-of-the-art technologies at hand that by itself, elevates this film to a degree beyond any other cinema-going experience at that time, that anybody had viewed at that time. Um, and if you watch the movie now, I would definitely fight the person that would cough up to not being slightly impressed by what they were seeing. Because it's still amazing. But that is why I give this film a 4 out of 5 it's hard not to find the film as a whole charming because it is rather dark <laughs> and there's just something absolutely novel about that, about death and destruction and seeing babies getting knocked out of carriages on cobblestone streets. You know, it's even shocking now. So what did you not like about the movie? I guess a little bit like H.G. Wells. I think that Claude Rains does a fantastic job of his descent into madness. My problem is, is that even for, and, and I also kind of like the, the violence. I mean, it was just kind of like real pretty heavy, uh, violent bursts, you know, outbursts and stuff. But, um, I kind of felt like it almost got to the point by the end of the movie, maniacal laugh, maniacal laugh, maniacal laugh, right? Uh, Chris Cooper, you know, his villain thing from The Muppets. Uh, 2014's The Muppets. 2012. 2012, thank you. Sorry, 2012's Muppets. And I, and, and I just kind of felt like it was just over, it was kind of overpowering the rest of the movie and not necessarily in a good way. Uh, which is why I didn't go higher than a four, because while it works at the beginning of the movie almost as a framing device, right? Because it doesn't start with, it doesn't start with him being a normal guy and going into, it starts with him already being a jerk, right? He throws the innkeeper dude down the stairs and everything, and this is within like the first two or three minutes of the movie. Um, and so we, we, we're already seeing, okay, wow, this guy is like totally over the, you know, off the rails. And then now it's, how did he get there? Okay, cool. But then by the end of the movie, you're just kind of like, all right, so now we get it. 
um, how bad is this guy going to be? And it just kind of seems to perpetuate itself instead of going to solve itself, even though it does ultimately do that as well. So that's kind of where it's really just more or less that hardcore characterization that they don't let go of because even though the story resolves itself and again resolves itself pretty well, I just kind of felt like they had, they turned it up to 11 from the get go and they didn't really have anywhere else to take the character to really show the depravity of it all. Something that you see a lot more in the next two Invisible Man movies, especially Invisible Woman. Uh, so with this film, it's very important that they matched the lighting for and also the choreography to get all the different shots to create the the illusion, I guess. And when they didn't match the lighting or they didn't match the choreography to the T, you can see, uh, you could just tell like where, where the blending just didn't work. And you, you'll notice like whenever you see like a little, like kind of a shadow effect and it's a little bit fuzzy. Well, with this film, there were 64,000 frames that had to be retouched. And the process of retouching all those 64,000 frames was that they had to take a small brush and like some kind of opaque dye and had to go in there and blend everything in. But yeah, the opaque dye definitely hides a little bit of it, but you can still see opaque, you know? So, I mean, there were a couple things where you're watching it and you just wonder, like, it's hard for me to say it because I appreciate it because of, of, of when it came out, but they did things that were a hundred percent perfectly achieved that you just kind of wonder why didn't they just go back and reshoot it <laughs> or, or fix something. I mean, it's a little, I mean, it was interesting. I know at the time people were working on three or four to five different movies every year. Um, and it just didn't work with people's schedules. So I, I mean, that alone makes it absolutely amazing that they were able to make the movie or, 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 or they were able to make great movies when they did because they weren't able, they didn't have the luxuries of, they didn't have the luxury of reshoots. Um, but yeah, I just, I would have liked to have seen a couple things re redone because man, it, it just would have been absolutely perfect. But yes, I definitely agree with you that uh, Claude Rains definitely hams it up. You can just tell that he is a hammy, you know, boisterous theatrical actor. And his acting does get better um, in in later films. I mean, you know who Claude Rains is. And he also has a bit part as the dad in The Wolfman. He plays uh, Sir John Talbot. I mean, this is a four-star movie. And... One name I failed to mention was, was Arthur Edison. He was the cinematographer who would later on go on to shoot uh, The Maltese Falcon and Casablanca. So a lot of talent in this film. The Invisible Man Returns had a lot of stuff to live up to, technically and storytelling-wise. Well, very good. Then I guess we should move uh, forward to 1940 for The Invisible Man Returns. Fear. Fear of the unknown, the unseen grips the populace. As a human being made invisible and insane by a potent drug, preys on the citizenry, intent on vengeance. Prison walls cannot hold him. Scotland Yard cannot stop him. And while science works frantically, while a loved one waits and hopes, the invisible hands of a condemned murderer deal out death and destruction. Spectral. 
I don't understand. Jeffrey, he's invisible. Why can't I see him? Oh, he's here, is he? He's catching me, Inspector. He wants to kill me. Hey, you can't go upstairs. Don't go upstairs. I'll have to do. Don't be afraid, darling. I can leave any moment I like. Take care of yourself, darling. I'll be all right. Helen, don't look at me like that. Jeffrey, he didn't kill Michael. Oh, didn't he? That shows how little you know, dear old Richard. I'm going to force the truth out of you. Don't get out of you. Yes, that's right. This is the sequel to The Invisible Man. And again, uh, loosely connected by proxy to H.G. Wells's uh, The Invisible Man. This one, however, is kind of an offshoot story. Um, and it stars Vincent Price or Cedric Hardwick and Nan Gray. What we have here is a poor guy by the name of Radcliffe played by vincent price he's sentenced to death for the murder of his brother and of course he's been framed okay um frank griffin who is the brother of john griff john jack whatever his brother of claude Rains' character in the in the original film uh decides to give him a chance i guess to prove himself or whatever uh and then injects him so that he can become invisible and now he gets to go and figure out what the heck happened to him. Um, shenanigans ensue, yada, yada, yada. All right, now, here's the thing. I, I This is one of those rare circumstances where you actually get a movie that is kind of connected in name only. Uh, none of the original director, like the original director came back. Uh, don't think any of the, any of the story people came back. Definitely none of the actors and actresses came back. Claude Rains makes an appearance as a picture of his character. <laughs> I guess there, there is the photo. Cause he was a estranged uncle, right? Um, or no, his brother, uh, Frank's, Frank is, um, uh, John Sutton plays Frank Griffin, um, and Griffin is, you know, Claude Rains' brother. Gotcha. That's how, that, that's the connection there. Anyway, um, so much like, or, or I guess, m- your, your star is the Invisible Man, and of course now he's not there, but where Claude Rains really worked hard, uh, to be on the set, to work within character, even though they're using all sorts of, you know, trickery uh, and camera stuff to get him to appear to be invisible. Uh, in this one, you know, Vincent Price is on screen for what, Tim? Two minutes-ish? If that. And the rest of the time, he's a disembodied voice. And I think it, while... As in terms of kind of a mystery, even though this is kind of supposed to be sci-fi horror, it really kind of plays out more as a uh, not not pulp detective, but definitely I would say a murder mystery. Um, but without someone there, the special effects are still good, but without someone there to really kind of throw it together. And you just kind of have this floating disembodied voice. It's just not as good. It's a decent movie, but, but it's trickery 
is more on the ears than the eyes. And since it's on the ears this time with the disembodied voice action and everything, um, it doesn't hold up as well. Uh, but the story, I think, is uh, pretty darn strong. And for what it is, uh, you know, Price does a decent job. And the movie holds up, I, I, I think, to most scrutiny. Uh, so it's not quite as enjoyable, but it's still good. I would give this one a 3.5 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? I didn't know how I felt about the movie at first. But once it got going, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting that they changed the chemical from in the first name or in the first name in the first movie it was called Monocane uh, into Judocane but this film also I thought the screenplay the dialogue was better written it was funnier especially the first movie was funny too because James Well had a great comedic sensibility Claude Rains had these great goofy maniacal moments like when he's invisible wearing the pants and he's skipping down the road tra- chasing that woman and he's singing like that little british nursery rhyme or something like that you don't really have that in this film but you have lines like when a monster murders a scientist hangs uh in this film you have a lot of that 40s and 50s cheesy background music you know to tell the audience like this is a romantic moment this is a mysterious moment Whereas in the first Invisible Man, the music doesn't really come into play until the end of the movie. The rest of the film is just talking, sound effects, action, not really any music at all. And the music also dates the film. Clearly 1940s. I don't mean that in a bad way either because it still felt like I was watching a good film. This one does have a lot of great scenes, a lot of great moments, like the invisible mouse scene in the lab. Just the choreography of that scene was really cool. I loved it because I just didn't know where the story was going to take me. Was Vincent Price going to go crazy and start murdering people? Was he going to trust his friend? Was he going to blow up on his love interest? Or was he going to not let the judocane, you know, take advantage of him and was he and, and still try to attempt to be a sane being. Like what was going to happen? And how was the scientist friend? How was he going to help him? Or was he going to turn out to be a bad guy or sell him out? Each turn that the story took or these characters took, I was rather surprised by it. And again, there are these wonderfully executed scenes in moments and like what i mentioned here with the uh, laboratory rat testing i thought was rather interesting just to show you the progression of the drug and how it affected these rats and over time it killed the rat and yet that adds a little weight to the ending should the doctor give vincent price the drug or not when vincent price becomes crazy at the end uh, will it kill him which if it kills him that'll kind of be okay because it's going to save some lives and it's going to put an end to this or maybe it'll it'll save him like you just don't know and so there's great build up to that last act which makes the last act that much more you know wonderful and satisfying and believe it or not the worst effect in this movie doesn't happen until the 45 minute mark And I am not bullshitting you at all. I stopped the movie to write the timestamp down because 
I was not bothered by anything else in this movie, special effects-wise, until I saw the self-tying rope, which they used stop-motion. You know, it looked very dated compared to everything else. Just like that jerky, early Ray Harryhausen stop-motion technique of, of the ropes tying somebody up. Which says a lot, if that's really the only thing that you know was bothersome in the whole film. For good effects, they actually attempt to show his out, the Invisible Man's outline in cigar smoke and in the rain. The cops, they start using these like smoke guns to try to find uh, the Invisible Man. In the first movie, the cops are actually pretty smart. They use these big rope nets to like test the room to see if the Invisible Man is hiding in the room. And they use like these spray paint cans to try to like spray him with with paint in this film it's smoke so you can see the outline of him in the smoke and you can actually see the outline of him in the smoke or in the rain and how that is achieved is well done i think the most impressive special effect impressive looking a special effect in either of these movies so far is the regeneration scene at the end where you see Vincent Price becoming Vincent Price, where you see his bones and his veins and the tendons. And, ooh, it oh man, it was just wonderful to watch. I actually watched that regeneration like four or five times in a row because I was so impressed with how it was shot. I think this was a wonderful film. I give it a four out of five as well. I thought it improved upon the first film, in so many great and wonderful ways, and it still captured the essence of the first film. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So, four out of five. Right on, right on. Okay, well then that brings us to also 1940s, The Invisible Woman. Now, this one is definitely a comedy film. It's science fiction comedy. It is directed by A. Edward Sutherland and stars Virginia Bruce as the Invisible Woman. Also stars John Barrymore, John Howard, Charlie Ruggles, and Oscar Homolka. Um, what we have here is a young lady who finds herself as a test subject, if you will, for a, for an invisibility device. And she ends up getting zapped. She is uh, made invisible. And what's the first thing she does? Goes and takes advantage of her terrible boss at her department store job. Um, you know, just complete shenanigans ensue. Uh, you know, there's now people. There's at, people after the device. Uh, Shemp Howard is actually one of them. So uh, a little bit of a uh, Three Stooges um, kind of connection in this. Um, so what, something that's interesting to note is while, yes, this is definitely a, uh, post code movie, this is definitely a code era film. Um, there was a lot of being, a, a, a lot of play and a lot of mileage pulled on this film because, you know, she's naked, right? She's naked the whole time. You just can't see it because by golly, she's invisible. And... Um, I, you know, I thought it was a cute movie. I didn't necessarily think it was like super duper funny. Um, but I, I'm not holding that against it in terms of it being a bad movie. Just maybe I didn't catch it in the right mood. Um, it, it does seem to be more screwball than just science fiction comedy, but that's okay. 
the, they, they pulled it off for what it was worth. I like this one quite a bit as well. At the end of the day, I give this one a 3.5 out of 5. And Tim, bring us home. I actually don't have a lot to say about this one. Uh, it's certainly sillier than all the other ones so far. Uh, John Fulton returns again to do the special effects. He was nominated for uh, both The Invisible Man Returns and uh, The Invisible Woman for Best Special Effects. But again, like with this film, you could just tell he's not really able to fully invest his time or money, good money, into uh, the making of the film. I am kind of struggling with trying to find what else to say about the movie. Because I'm looking at my notes and I realized I wrote down a lot of quotes because... There's just not really a lot to it. Of all three of these films, this is definitely a product of the 1940s. You have your nods to women's lib with how the main character, how she uh, expresses herself, how she wants to get back at her boss because she feels that she deserves better in a way. But then at the same time, it really puts women down because she ends up at the end of the movie with the opposite, the main guy. And the main guy is your stereotypical rich playboy womanizer who is only interested in how she looks and wants her to only wants her to become visible so that he can see what she looks like. So possibly he can marry her and do other raunchy things with her. And if she chooses not to make herself visible, that is because she is fat and ugly. Like, this is what he really thinks. And the really chauvinistic side of Hollywood shows its head throughout this entire film. So any inclination of women's liberation, putting ladies first and women's rights in, in, in its own like cheeky way, kind of goes out the door by the end of the film because women don't know how to drink. Especially invisible women don't know how to drink and they can't hold their alcohol. And it turns out she has to be flat out drunk to make herself visible, which in itself is kind of funny, but it's not like your thin man kind of funny where he picks on her for being kind of a lightweight. Well, she deserves it because she nags at him quite a bit as well. You know, it's a part of the relationship. That type of humor doesn't really carry on to these characters because there's not really that many redeeming qualities of the male playboy character. So it was kind of a lot of things like that, coupled with the uh, the humor is definitely more in your face. They just try to throw out these one-liners, which, I mean, to be fair, a lot of them do land gracefully, but... That is without the person delivering that one-liner. They, of course, slap you in the face with it first before they let it land gracefully. So it's a lot more in your face. And I can't say I really liked the film because of that. I give it a 2.5 out of 5. Uh, it's easily forgettable, but it's one hour and, what, 12 minutes or so. It's an easy watch. So 2.5 out of 5. All right, well, that concludes uh, our Invisible Man Classic Cinema, Universal Cinema for this week. Next week, we pick up with Invisible Agent from 1942, The Invisible Man's Revenge from 1944, and Abbott and Costello meet The Invisible Man from 1951. And without further ado, I believe it is now time for the spiel, is it not, sir? 
Spiel on. You set him up and I'll knock him back, Lloyd. One by one. White man's burden, Lloyd, my man. White man's burden. Say, Lloyd, uh, it seems I'm temporarily light. <laughs> How's my credit in this joint, anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. That's swell. I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You were always the best of them. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Thank you for saying so. To as always, has been brought to us by music partners Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitto1235. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old Spotify and other podcast directories. If you'd like to support the show, head on over to Patreon.com and check us out over there and so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to claude rains i get to say this i learned the lines and pray to god take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week madam perhaps we should be going oh very well monsieur thank you so much so nice to see you and I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>